I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It's a day like this. There's plenty of water. Your soundtrack is robins and blue jays. And the flutter of butterflies is flying around you. It's late like this when you're here. And now, in the present moment, is why you embrace the suck and do something like this. This is Amathan Sebaraja. My name is Amathan. And it's a pretty hard one for most people because the way it's spelled, um, there's two THs in my name, uh, which instantly make me actually, uh, according to the Google Sphere anyway, I'm the only Amethan in the Google Sphere. Amethan is a through hiker. Through hiking is basically long distance trail hiking, 100 kilometers or more. You might have read Wild by Cheryl Strayed or seen the movie with Reese Witherspoon. That is through hiking. Amethan has covered something like 10,000 kilometers of terrain, and he spent more than 10 months on the trail. But a decade ago, Amethan hadn't heard of any of this. Um, I mean, I couldn't really afford any of the gear because I grew up in inner city Toronto, so, you know, it's not something that you get exposed to a lot. So I had to go to an army surplus store, got a um, military surplus backpack and a huge Walmart tent. Um, my pack was so big and heavy, I couldn't even put my my sleeping bag in it, so somebody else had to carry it because it was so massive. One of the people who had to carry it was his friend, Tyler Burke. That first hike together was four days long. It took them to the top of the Smoky Mountains. But while they're up there, standing at the summit, there was this moment. Do you remember that time when you got the Klingman Stone at the top? That brown family looked at me like I was off the planet. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. I tell that story pretty often, actually. Um, we, we had come up this, this, this route on the backside of, of Clingman's Dome, which is the, the highest peak in both Tennessee and North Carolina. And you can drive a car to within 1,000 feet of the summit from the other side. But we had come up the backside, and we'd been walking for two days, and we were kind of, kind of dirty and, and sweaty and, and all of these things. And we, we came up. And uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a family of South Asian descent up there, and they're just looking at him like he is insane. Like there is something seriously wrong with this guy for having walked up the mountain. <laughs> and, you know, Amethan's laughing, <laughs> laughing at it right away. But it, it really tells a pretty, you know, a pretty fundamental story about who is using National Park backcountry in these ways and how, how white that subset of people really is. I'm A.C. Rowe. This is The Doc Project. Earlier this year, Amethan set out on his third major hike to do the Arizona Trail. It's more than 12,000 kilometers from northern Mexico up through the state of Arizona to the border at southern Utah. And as he prepared for this hike, Amethan had a question about race and hiking. Who's out there? Who gets to use the trails? And the role that race plays in that. But as he hiked another story kept coming up for him. Each step, 
faced him with the memory of something that happened a long time ago. Amethan will take it from here. Well, this is the sound of me in Tucson, packing my food for the next four days of the hike. I've had to choose my weather window wisely. Hike too early in the season, I risk late winter storms in the high passes and swollen rivers below. Hike too late, I risk sunstroke, dehydration, and rattlesnakes. As a brown-skinned guy, I face an additional challenge. The trail starts in the borderland between Mexico and Arizona, and like many places along that border, people cross without papers. Border patrol agents are vigilant. I could be mistaken for a migrant crossing from Mexico into the US. I'm worried about being questioned, doubted by authorities. But one thing reassures me. My friend Tyler is with me for the first part of the trail. He plans to hike into Tucson from the Mexican border, then catch a flight back to Canada. Whether he wants it or not, as a white guy, he's my insurance policy. Uh, this is uh, February 17th, right about now. My phone just fell, let's go pick it up. Get a break, sweet. Okay, so yeah, just got off the Huachuca mountain range, which is uh, starts from the Mexican border and traverses uh, well over, must be at least 16, 17,000 feet in elevation differentials. Last night, uh, it must have got to about, I don't know, minus 12, minus 13 degrees Celsius up in the mountains, high elevation, wind was gusting around probably 70, 60 to 70 kilometers per hour. Uh, my water bottles froze, that's how cold it was. Didn't even get a chance to cook last night because I was just, it was just brutal, like it was very, very cold. But nevertheless, uh, we made it, we made it through the night. And that's one of the toughest sections in the entire trail actually, straight off the bat. Anyway, I'm, I'm stepping out. Uh, this is our day four. Um, we saw that Border Patrol sign, and the Border Patrol passed by, and uh, another sign later on that says, no more, no more dead. Uh, humanitarian aid for uh, the walkers. Nonprofit groups leave big gallon containers of water to help the migrants who are crossing into the U.S. here. Water is life in that desert. But border patrols have been filmed destroying those water caches. So those signs in Spanish saying, uh, no mas muertes, no more dead, humanitarian aid for the walkers, are in protest to that practice. In the town itself, we see the border patrol vehicles everywhere, even on the back streets. I was in a weird headspace when I saw that because um, my family immigrated to Canada and my dad is a political refugee. I saw the last asylum here. Sorry, I just saw a sign here that says um, we don't call 911, but we have Colt 45s. Uh, so that's uh, so. There's that to this town. The whole like border situation is really, really tricky. Like talking about it, talking about it. I'm I'm tearing up. A little bit, so I hope I maintain my composure through this. I, I, I still don't know what my dad 
had to do to get to Canada the way he did and file for asylum. I, I would never know what sort of things that he had to endure as he made his way through um, checkpoint after checkpoint, coming from Sri Lanka and taking the passageways that he did to get here. Um, so the whole border issues is really close to my heart. It's people's lives out there. It's ridiculous. My dad had come to Canada in 1992 as a political refugee. Ignoring warnings, Appa had gone into rice business with Uncle Jinnah and his son-in-law. Uncle Jinnah's family was Muslim Tamils, and we were Hindu Tamils. And working together in some ways was breaking a taboo, but they thought it would be a good strategy. The rice fields were in the jungle, and they needed each other to go there. They were each other's insurance policy. The Sri Lankan army had a base on the other side of the rice field. Appa was able to negotiate with them, convince them that the farm machinery they were bringing in was indeed for the farming. I remember the checkpoints. I remember praying silently, desperately, that my father and Uncle Jinnah would be able to convince the army they weren't ferrying supplies to the tigers. The rebels had a camp on the other side of the rice field, and they suspected Appa and Jinnah of spying for the army. The tigers confiscated our farm equipment for the war effort, quite often, and two consecutive harvest as war tax at gunpoint. I didn't realize it then, but my mom and dad were on the hit list. Then, in 1990, things got much, much worse. Oh my god. Um, this is now day six. I'm just in a motel holdout in Sierra Vista, and this is at low elevation at 4,200 feet, and it is brutal storm out here. You can I don't know if you can hear the sounds. Um, I can't see anything. I can't see any of the mountains, and it is heavy, heavy, heavy rains. I am so glad not to be on the mountain. Tyler and I are going to just hunker down. Uh, I'm getting a little cold just standing out here, so I'm going to go back inside. So uh, this is... Oh, Wow. Whew. Yeah, there might even be flash flood warnings after this. Okay. Alright, so this is uh, around 5.30 in the evening and day 7. So Tyler and I decided to um, push today to, uh, because uh, he's, got a, he's on a tight schedule and uh, the weather was good today. Like Theoretically, like there was nothing strange going to happen that's had been happening for the last few days except the snow pile but uh what do you think i think we uh maybe underestimated just how much uh, snow pile there is yeah the snow was a challenge today for sure it was a day that i think you would have chosen to avoid it uh i wanted to push through the good thing is uh we were able to, able to get down and uh you know put some real canadian skills to use <laughs> I made a, um, both of us have made a, some snow camp up here, um, just flattened out the, the packed the snow down a little bit in the high low elevation and got a little fire going. So we're going to turn it in, I think, and then hope for a, hope for a bit of a melt tomorrow, um, if all goes well.
I just on the road hike now. There's just waist deep snow everywhere. This, yeah, this is not a good scenario. Um, yeah, just usually this is one of the reasons why I tend to hike alone because I can then make my own decisions. But when there's two people involved, then you always have to make compromises. And uh, but I'm also happy that Tyler's here because um, it wouldn't be fun uh, me trying to do this by myself, whether or not. I would be on this trail in the first place, but anyway, um, yeah, it's it's not cold at least, but uh, we're gonna try to push on and um, see how Tyler's feeling. I think that he's having some pretty bad um, frostbite on his feet as well because he doesn't have gaiters. Okay, so I'm gonna point this microphone in the general direction of uh, um, Amanda and Travis that we just picked me up uh, and Tyler up off the side of the road because uh, there's no more hiking today or for the next couple of days for that matter. Anyway, hi, thank you both. Hi. Hi, I'm Travis. And uh, we just picked these guys up on the side of the road north of Sonoida. And uh, there's a lot of snow out there, which is rare, but exciting for us since we live in Arizona. So. Yeah, we saw, I, I, I don't know if it was Tyler or you, Amazon, who had your thumb uh, out. Was it was you. And we're like, those guys look like hikers. And Travis was all, should we pick him up? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, why not? So, thank you so much. I always say, like, the trail is full of the best people, no matter what, no matter which trail you're at. And, uh, and you know, if you through hiked, it's one of those adages that you absolutely believe. One, the trail will put you where you need to be. And two, uh, the trail provides. Anyway, thank you both. You're welcome. <laughs> So we make it into Tucson, and Tyler catches his flight back to Ottawa. I head back to do over the mountain range that we bypassed because of the weather. And now, I'm on my own. AC here. Coming up, Amethan faces the trail and the past. You can follow along with Amethan on his hike. He took spectacular photos. Deserts, snowstorms, horses. You can find us on Instagram. We are at CBC The Doc Project. What if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Can you hear it? Gunshots. So here you are walking in this uh, beautiful little Manzanita forest, peaceful little place, and then you see high power rifles popping off in the distance. There's only two things that I'm really, really worried about when I'm out hiking. Uh, one is lightning, because well, if it's your day, it's your day. There's nothing you can really do if you're caught on a ball by yourself. You're the highest point. Yeah, that's it. Yep, lightning. Can't do anything about it. 
The other is particularly uh, relevant to the area that I'm hiking in right now is uh, somebody with a shotgun. Um, after all, I don't know, there's all sorts of stories about which aunties and border patrols and blah, 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 whatever. It's just kind of a bit unnerving, but beautiful, beautiful hiking. About to hit the 100 mile mark on the Arizona Trail. Woo! So, onwards. So I just want to say a couple of things about the gunshot. So I just found out, um, looking through my notes, that there's a firing range um, there over there. So that's that. That's why they were popping off high-power rifles. Um, it's still something that freaks me out. Um, like, I mean, I grew up in a Civil War area, so there's certain things that are etched into, you know, deep inside of you. Like One of the things is that, like, anytime people get, um, you know, so gaga about air shows and helicopters and helicopter rides but whenever a helicopter i hear the choppers of the blades to me that's an apache coming down as one of those old model helicopters coming down and strafing the village so helicopters always meant death from above for us or indiscriminate death from above uh, same with gunshots just sitting here by this beautiful little stream uh, it's nice and cool so i'm gonna sit here for a few minutes enjoy my water and get over the gunshots and then keep going I don't know if you can hear that. So that's a, one of them is a search and rescue. The other is a border patrol helicopter. Just came and uh, did a couple of uh, swirls around me. And I'm not sure what they're looking for, but uh, there we are. Life on the Arizona Trail. It's been 29 years since that long, confusing night in August. The night when everything changed. I thought I'd never forget it, but somehow you do. That's how trauma works. It buries certain memories deeper, hides them behind seemingly innocuous things, like an unseen helicopter in the night sky, like machine gun fire and explosions ringing through the night. That night, in 1990, armed men went into Uncle Jinnah's house, my father's business partner. Uncle Jinnah was at the mosque, but his son-in-law was home. They shot him dead in front of his children. And then they went to the mosque. They opened machine gun fire and tossed hand grenades onto men and boys at Isha prayers, killing more than 100, including Uncle Jinnah. I heard the machine gun fire and the grenade explosions. And within half an hour, the helicopters. The shooting started from above. It was night and we could see the tracer bullets like fireworks raining down from the sky. And then from down below, tracers going up, probably from handled weapons on the ground. Sound travels slower than light. There was a kind of disconnect between the tracer bullets and the deafening sounds of the helicopters and the gunfire. I was eight years old. Okay, <clears throat> um, midday, March 13th, I think. Just got out of a town called Superior, uh, 10 miles out of town. That's the first time I happened to run into two hikers. They're section hiking, they're from Arizona. Uh, well, there's the first uh, non-white hikers that I've, uh, uh, I've seen on the trail so far in 310 plus all miles. They're the first. So just said hello. 
as a lady and and a man, uh, young, quite young. So I just ask them if there's an experience or or an anecdote or whatever it is that they wish to share that reflects diversity on the trail. Because um, I was a little bit blunt about it, I guess. Uh, the couple just became a little defensive. And the lady immediately said, oh, like, I never think about race. And she's like, oh, maybe it's a class thing. And I'm like, well, yeah, like, certainly class plays the part. And then I just told him, like, it doesn't have to be about race, just wondering who gets to use this land and who gets to share this land and who's out here. And the girl was like, it's everybody. Like, yeah, absolutely, everybody should be out here. But they aren't, because uh, you two are the first hikers in our colors that I've seen. And in my last three, three hikes, this included, I haven't come across that many. <sighs> okay. Oh, wow. Uh, so, um, out of nowhere, Sandra Cook, she's a friend I met through the Facebook group called the Hikers of Color. And now, like a sweetheart and true solidarity, Sandra is going to drive two hours from Phoenix to Pine in the middle of nowhere to pick me up and take me back to her house so I can rest up. My shoes are completely done, it's torn up. Uh, so, yeah, so she's gonna go take me to get some shoes and maybe take a, a zero and zero meaning a zero hiking day, zero mile day. Holy, what a day. I spent two great days in Phoenix with Sandra. Then she drives me back to Trailhead, and so that I can be back on the trail for my birthday. Hi, my name is Sandra Cook. I am from Phoenix, Arizona. Coming from a, a Mexican background, I never knew the world of hiking, outdoors, camping, backpacking. I never thought that it would be something that I could partake in. I never thought I would ever enjoy it. In fact, I thought that I hated camping and hiking. And so in 2015, I was introduced into that world and I immediately loved it. I immediately felt at home. And I just wanted to give a little bit back of what I have experienced. So that is why <laughs> I am currently um, driving him to um, a trailhead. Thanks, Sandra. That's very sweet. It's a uh, quarter to eight ish. It's dark. About 100, uh, 120 yards from me, pretty close, are a pair of glowing amber eyes. So, that could only be one thing. And we are now approaching um, wildcat territory. So, it looks fairly small, um, not moving. I am uh, just gonna shine my headlamp at it. Um, let her know that uh, I'm meaner and I'm bigger. Um, <laughs> not really. I really hope that she doesn't attack on my birthday. That would kind of be sad. 
No, she still hasn't moved. We're both just kind of watching each other. Uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how this goes. But I think I'm gonna just uh, call it a night and find safety in the comfort of my two millimeter thick silk nylon walls. So good night to you. Happy birthday to me. And may the kitty cat just drink her water and leave me in peace. Oh wow, the cicadas are really loud out here. Can you hear them? We were forced to abandon the business, the rice fields, and eventually the land itself. Nearly bankrupt, my father fled to the West. He came to Canada under a false identity. He sponsored us three years later, and we showed up in Toronto on a summer day on June 21st, 1995. I was wearing a parka, even though it was 21 degrees Celsius. I knew nothing about Canada, except that it was foreign and there were snow and apples. And I grew up in Toronto, burying my memories deep down. Okay, um, April 3rd, 6 p.m. I am at uh, 786.6 miles on the Arizona Trail, which means I'm just about, just one month. 2.1 miles to the finish line at the monument at the Utah border. So as soon as I, um, in a few minutes or in a few seconds, I'm going to turn this off, turn all my electronics off, and just be on this trail with the juniper and the red rock, uh, just just with this earth, and just walk to the end. So that's it. Okay, I'm at uh, State Highway 89 in uh, Utah, trying to get a hitch. I got my Canadian flag out, but uh, so far nobody's uh, nobody's even inclined to stop. Already had to walk eight, uh, 11 miles to get to this highway, hoping to get a hitch out to Flagstaff and uh, see what happened. I've been here for about 20 minutes now. I'm in my little motel room in Page because um, I waited for three hours and I didn't get a hitch. Um, those who, the, not the cars, but the passerby, they were like, just kept warning me about how I shouldn't get stuck so close to a Navajo reservation if I'm going to get robbed. And um, it was a little bit disappointing uh, because I, whenever I talked to somebody, uh, they would just be, they would assume that I was Navajo and kind of wouldn't stop. <laughs> And so it's a bit of a damper at the end of the trail to kind of just be exposed to that. And, and of course, uh, I didn't get a hitch at all. So I decided I was just going to stay the town. And so I walked in, got a place. Um, and then the, the, the funny thing was, um, you know, it just it's kind of neat. The place is actually owned by a couple uh, who are originally from Gujarat, India. And, you know, there's sort of this instant sort of camaraderie. Um, and they told me um, they're very proud of me for having done what I have done. 
um, but just touching, you know, because um, it's not like it's not that common for brown people to be out doing what I'm doing. So I'm just glad that I got to end this trip on a good note like that. Um, I didn't want to let the whole hitchhiking thing kind of color my uh, experience of what has otherwise been an incredible trail experience in so many ways. The history of distance hiking is rooted in trauma and therapy. The first person to hike the Appalachian Trail, Earl Schaefer, he was a World War II veteran. He said he did it to walk the army out of his system. Maybe that's why I'm still drawn to it. In distance hiking, there's joy and a lot of pain. There's beauty, there's ugliness, and humor and heartache. The trail will give you moments of piercing clarity. It'll test and restore your faith in humanity, and importantly in yourself. The Arizona Trail was no different in that sense. And when it was all over, a friend eventually picked me up, and we drove back to Vancouver, where I could start getting ready for my next hike. Amethan Sebaraja. That doc was produced by Amethan. It was produced and mixed by Allison Cook and edited by me. And if you know a through hiker, or even just a hiker, regular kind, or anyone who might enjoy this story, please take a moment to share it with them and rate and review us. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Julia Poggle, and me. Althea Manassen is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. Oh, wow. The cicadas are really loud out here. Can you hear them? For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.